For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I'm wondering how those lyrics struck you this morning as we sang them. On the one hand, I'm assuming that most of us are fine singing a song about Christian obedience. Um, at the same time, we live in a culture that can make us nervous about the concept of obedience. There's a lot of anxiety around the idea of obedience. It can, it can make us nervous. We've all seen ways that the word or the idea of obedience has, has been used in a controlling manner in different people's lives and especially different people's faiths. And the end result of that is that it can foster a, a legalistic or fundamentalist or judgmental or anxious or joyless faith. What else happens when you hear the message over and over again, obey God as if salvation depended only on you? Obey God as if all God cares about is how you behave, and usually how you behave in just a handful of specific issues that you hear about time and time again. Obey God by completely giving yourself over to the teaching and the advice and direction of a particular spiritual leader in your life. Obey God or else. And so it's no wonder when we see that in the world around us that, that people find that brand of Christianity off-putting. And so they look for a different way, whether it's uh, Nietzsche's call to overcome the dragon named Thou Shalt, or the new atheist's cry that religion is just cosmic mind control or the postmodern drive to live your truth, or, or the modern evangelical motto, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, or even uh, what we've seen in our own reform circles, this uh, kind of neo-reformed emphasis on radical grace. All of these are ways of coping with, uh, sometimes uh, minimizing, other times softening, uh, this call to Christian obedience. And so with those extremes in the background, it's probably natural for us to come into church and start wondering, what do we make of obedience? What place does faithfulness have in the Christian life? And the good news for us this morning is that God's word gives us a robust and helpful answer. It's robust enough for us to make sense of the contours of life, but it's also simple enough for the, the children in our midst to get a hang of it and take it into their lives as well. This is the hopeful word from Leviticus 26 this morning. Faithfulness is all about love. Faithfulness is all about love. It's about God's people receiving God's love and responding to God's love with their own love given back to him. We don't need to be anxious about obedience, but we do need to be diligent. 
Because as we'll hear in a moment, God calls his people to practice holy faithfulness. And so with that in mind, brothers and sisters, let's hear God's word together. Leviticus 26. If you're joining me in the Black Pew Bibles that are around you, you can find it on page, uh, starting on page 104. This is God's word for us today. Leviticus 26. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again, sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the power, pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children, and destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then 
I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. When I break the supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it will have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of the driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. All those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good word that calls us to a life of faithfulness. We shrink back from your judgments, righteous as they may be. And we ask that even now you would give us ears to hear, build us up. We sense your grace that's present even here, your hand of love that may be upon us even now. Speak to us through this preached word, we pray. Bless your word that it may prove rich in fruits that you love. Illuminate your word to us through the Holy Spirit that we may hear your voice now, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Holy faithfulness is all about love. And in this passage that we just read, God is initiating his people into a life of love, a relationship of committed covenantal faithfulness. Remember where they are at this point in time. They are preparing to leave the mountain of God and move toward the promised land. And the central question in the last three chapters of the book of Leviticus is, what kind of people will they be when they get there? What kind of people will they be when they come to the promised land? Last week in Leviticus 25, we heard God tell them that they are going to be a people who practices holy shalom. And now here in Leviticus 26, God tells them to choose holy faithfulness. The laws in Leviticus 26 are set up like an ancient Near Eastern treaty with a king approaching a people with blessings and curses and conditions all aimed at urging the people, persuading the people, even incentivizing the people to be faithful to the terms of the covenant. And so here's what you need to know. Three things that you need to know about holy faithfulness. First, obedience brings blessing. Now that's verses 1 through 13 in chapter 26. Obedience brings blessing. And so let's ask us, what exactly does God want us to do? What does God want us to do in this passage? Quite simply, God wants us to obey him habitually. God wants us to obey him Habitually, verse 3 that we read describes obedience as an active habit. God wants his people to walk in my statutes, uh, to continue to practice them throughout the day. Walk in my statutes, observe my commandments, and do them. And the commandments themselves are concentrated on covenantal spiritual fidelity. When you get to the promised land, avoid idols or images or pillars or figures. Keep the Sabbaths. Reverence my sanctuary. In other words, cling to God alone in covenantal love. It is exactly like a husband or wife saying to the other spouse, I am your loving partner, so stay Faithful to me. That's what God is saying in this passage. Verse 2, I am the Lord. Verse 1, I am the Lord your God. I am your loving, 
covenantal husband and king, stay faithful to me. Obey my rules habitually. And so this isn't mindless obedience that God is calling his people to. This is an intentional, loving response to a God of love. And it's also not perfectionism. God in this passage, as much as we might hear it, he is not calling his people to absolute perfection because part of religious faithful worship in the Old Testament involved sacrificing for sin. And God is telling his people to keep doing those sacrifices for your sin. God knows our weaknesses. God is patient with his people. Psalm 103 puts it like this, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God is not saying to us, obey me perfectly or else. He's saying, obey me habitually. That's what God wants us to do. So what happens when we obey? God blesses us. God blesses us when we obey. God promises blessing in response to obedience. Listen to the language of verse 3 and 4. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you a whole host of blessings. Obedience brings blessing. God promises prosperity an absolute abundance of life-giving rain that would give an absolute abundance of life-giving food. God promises safety, a land that is free from enemies, free from conflict, free from threat, free even from wild animals that cause harm. And most importantly, God promises spiritual intimacy, from prosperity to safety, to spiritual intimacy, verses 11 and 12, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. This picture of spiritual intimacy resounds with eschatological hope. God will live with them. God will even walk among them, just like God walked about in the Garden of Eden, one day God will once more walk amongst his people out in their midst, meaning that one day God's people are going to outgrow the tabernacle. One day the special presence of God would no longer be confined behind the barriers and walls of the tabernacle, but the presence of God would overflow those boundaries and break out into the midst of his people with grace, and then they would see him face to face. Prosperity, safety, spiritual intimacy when we obey. Obedience brings blessing. But why? Why does God choose to return blessing for obedience? Is it because he owes us? Is it a, a kind of a one-for-one one this for that 
Transaction? No, not at all. This isn't legalism. This isn't works righteousness. We can't buy his blessing with our works. We can't purchase salvation for ourselves. This is not an instruction manual on how to earn eternal life through your doings. They were already saved. They were already forgiven. They were already his people when God gave them these rules. Faithfulness presupposes faith. And so this is not a mere transaction. And so why does obedience bring blessing? Because God loves his people. That's why obedience brings blessing. God loves his people. Verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. God's blessing is an expression of his love for his people. God loves to give his children good things like food and earthly security. And most of all, God loves to give the blessing and the gift of himself. Remember, faithfulness is all about love. It's all about God loving his people and then him calling his people to reciprocate that love through holy obedience, habitual obedience. And when they do, then God responds like the best father would. He showers loving gifts upon his people. And this hasn't changed. Obedience still brings blessing. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says that when we seek first the kingdom of God, then God will give us all of the things we need for life on this earth. They will be added to you. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, says that if the people are faithful in their generosity, God will provide for them abundantly. Or look at Galatians. If the people in Galatians and all of the church, if the people keep in step with the Spirit, then they will enjoy the fruit of the Spirit in great abundance. And the list goes on and on in the New Testament. Obedience brings blessing. Oftentimes, God grants us the blessing of material provision and physical safety. But even if he withholds those things, he always promises to give us the blessing of spiritual intimacy. In fact, as we look across the world, the testimony of persecuted and impoverished Christians teaches us in the West that oftentimes we feel closest to God in times of suffering. So God doesn't withhold his promises to us. And because the promise of blessing rings out with eschatological hope, then it's always future-oriented in our obedience. As 2 Peter 1 says, when we persevere in habitual obedience now, there will be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Obedience brings blessing. But as this passage shows us, the flip side is also very true. Disobedience brings discipline. Disobedience brings discipline. 
So what exactly does God not want us to do? God does not want us to disobey habitually. He does not want us to disobey habitually. If obedience was about habits, disobedience is two. Verses 21 and 23 and 27 describe it as walking contrary to the Lord. Not the one-time sins and mistakes that every single one of us makes, but the habitual, hard-hearted, spiritual rebellion of people who are rejecting the covenant outright. They are regularly breaking God's covenant, continually practicing spiritual adultery. Again, that's what's in view here. God is speaking to his people both as a king and a spouse. He's calling them to spiritual covenantal fidelity as opposed to spiritual covenantal adultery. And so on the one hand, if you have a tender conscience this morning, and so you're hearing about the disciplines of God on disobedient sinners, and you recall it may be something that you did yesterday that you regret, and you're convinced that God is mad at you, and this is his word striking you down, I, I want you to rest easy. Uh, because again, uh, this passage is confronting habitual disobedience, but at the very same time, this passage is a warning to each and every one of us, covenant children, adults who are here. This passage is a warning for you, small sins that are ignored over time become habitual disobedience. And, and what happens when we then disobey like that? Well, the text is clear. God disciplines us. Verses 14 through 16, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. The Lord says he will turn all of those promised blessings onto their head. And he will pour out instead an abundance of curses. Disobedience brings discipline. Instead of prosperity, God promises poverty. Verses 19 and 20, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Instead of safety, God promises destruction. Verse 17, you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. Verse 22, I will let loose wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number. And instead of spiritual intimacy, God promises spiritual rejection. Verse 17, I will set my face against you. Instead of walking among them, God promises the reversal of that great promise. Not walking among them, but verse 22, I will walk contrary to you. Uh, verse 31, 
The Lord says, I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. Meaning that if the people tried to appease God through sacrifices by sending up the smoke of the burnt animals, which normally would be considered pleasing offerings, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, if they tried to appease God through offering while continuing to walk in spiritual adultery, he would reject their offerings entirely. He will not smell their pleasing aromas anymore. Disobedience brings discipline. And now you might say, that sounds harsh. But as Old Testament scholar Jay Sklar reminds us, the punishment fits the crime. Everything that God does to them, they first did to him. When they walk contrary to God, he then will walk contrary to them. If they reject him, he will reject them. If they mistreat the sanctuary, then he will make the sanctuary a place of desolation. If they mistreat the land, then God will throw them out of the land so that the land can then enjoy its own Sabbath rest. The disciplines of God are hard, but they are justly deserved. Now, you, you might say, well, I thought the message of this text wasn't obey God or else. It sure sounds like obey God or else. But if you look carefully at the text, you can see that God's patience is still on display even in his discipline. He doesn't immediately unleash the worst of his wrath on the first instance of sin. The disciplines of God increase over time with intensity. Just listen to the way that the Lord talks about himself in this passage. It's like a parent who is responding to disobedience with an increased urgency and probably an increased tone of voice the whole time while those warnings continue to get rejected. Verse 16, uh, if you don't do these things, then I will do this to you. Verse 18, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Verse 21, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Verses 23 through 24, if that doesn't work, then I will also walk contrary to you and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And then culminating in verse 28, uh, if you will not listen to me in spite of all of this, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. So God escalates his discipline over time. And he saves the worst of his wrath, the worst of it, as an absolute last resort to his people who continue to reject him. Just look at Old Testament history. These verses actually perfectly unfold what's going to happen throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and it culminates in the greatest discipline, which is exile. And in Old Testament history, exile did not happen until after hundreds of years of unfaithfulness. Even in his discipline, God is patient, but he cannot overlook sin, disobedience, brings 
discipline. But why? Is God just insecure? Or just some sort of vengeful God? No, but he is a jealous God. He is jealous for the love of his people, and rightly so. He is the most holy and the most gracious God. He rightly deserves our obedience. He rightly deserves our love. And that's what he wants. Proverbs 23, 26, my son, give me your heart. The Lord wants our hearts. And when we refuse him our hearts, when we harden our hearts towards him, he fights to win us back. Why does disobedience bring discipline? Because God loves his people. Verse 23, and if by this discipline you are not turned toward me, but walk contrary to me. That's the point. He's trying to, through the disciplines, turn the people back to himself. This isn't unhinged revenge or punishment. God is trying to reclaim the sinners he loves. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. God's discipline has a redemptive purpose. He is breaking their hearts so that they return to him in love. And that's why the discipline gets increasingly intense. To quote Jay Sklar again, the harder the heart, the stronger the hammer used to break it. These are ultimately disciplines of love. And none of that has changed. Disobedience still brings discipline. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that husbands who are harsh with their wives will have their prayers hindered. Or 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that the people's disobedience at the Lord's Supper had fatal consequences. And these are just a few examples from the New Testament. These are all warnings to us. Do not harden your heart against the Lord. Do not walk in sin. Do not habitually disobey God because disobedience brings discipline. And I'm sure that you've experienced that in your own life. These days, for Christians, God's discipline is measured less in national disasters and more in personal experiences, whether personal experiences in life or even God working in our own conscience to discipline us for our sin. Uh, recently, I was talking with my kids about discipline, and uh, one of them said with, I think, some innocent frustration, well, no one disciplines you. <laughs> and I just had to chuckle and smile and, and tell them the truth. I said, that's not true at all. God disciplines me. Every time I sin, 
God disciplines me. I experience the Lord's discipline. We all do, don't we? In one way or another. And so the question then for us is, what do we do with that? When we feel the Lord's discipline, what can we do? Is discipline the last word for us in our spiritual lives? Thankfully, no. The theme of Leviticus remains strong even here at the end of the book. He has made a way. The Lord has opened up a way for us to get back into his presence. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. And repentance brings restoration. Repentance brings restoration. What does God want us to do when we sin? He wants us to repent wholeheartedly. He wants us to repent wholeheartedly. Verses 40 and 41 describe for us wholehearted repentance. The people needed to confess their iniquity, naming and owning their habitual sin. They needed to humble their hearts, surrendering themselves to the Lord and to his righteous judgment, saying that he was right, they were wrong, they needed to be broken over their sin, and then they needed to make amends, doing whatever God commanded in order to make it right again. So this wasn't some sort of half-hearted sorry just to get someone off their back. This was wholehearted, turning from sin, casting themselves upon the Lord and begging for mercy. What does God want us to do when we sin? He wants us to repent wholeheartedly. And what happens when we repent? God restores us. The Lord restores his people. Four times in these closing verses, God says that he will remember his covenant. He will take up his covenant promises and move with swift compassion to deliver his people. Just like the Exodus, where God remembered his people. He remembered his covenant promises. He heard their cries. He swiftly moved to deliver his people. And here God says, even if you sinned for generations, I'll do it again. I'll do it again. I will keep coming for you. Even if the discipline lasts for an extremely long time, God will not cast off his people forever. Repentance brings restoration. But why? Why is God so willing to forgive? Because God loves his people. Because God loves his people. Verse 44, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. Faithfulness is all about love. God restores his people because he loves them. And that hasn't changed. Repentance still brings restoration through Jesus Christ. 
Luke chapter 1, God remembered his covenant promises to rescue his people from their sins. And so he sent Jesus to redeem them. Galatians chapter 3, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took upon himself the curse of death which we confessed already in our confession of faith. He delivered us from the covenant curses that we heard about in this passage. Poverty, destruction, spiritual rejection. Jesus experienced all of those things for us on the cross. So we do not have to experience the covenant curses of God anymore when we repent and believe. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Jesus remains faithful. Even when we are faithless, just like in Leviticus 26, when we are in Christ, God will never break his covenant of redemption towards us. And 1 John 1 assures us of that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance brings restoration. And so we do not need to be nervous about obedience, but we do need to choose. The question remains for us, for you and for me, what kind of people are we going to be? Are we going to go our own way, minimizing or ignoring God's call to obedience? Or will we join God in this life of covenantal love marked by faithfulness? Hopefully you've heard the message of this text already. The, the message is abundantly clear. Faithfulness is worth it. Faithfulness is absolutely worth it. And so for you, make it a habit to obey God. Look at your life and root out all the areas of life where you habitually disobey him. And when the Lord shines a particular spotlight on one area of your life, one area where you are stuck in patterns of disobedience, repent wholeheartedly. Confess your sin. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble your heart. Make amends. Do what the Lord commands in order to make it right, and you will experience restoration in Jesus Christ. Faithfulness is all about love. It's about a God who loves us, and he calls us to love him back. And when we do, he promises that we will know and experience his love fully. And so without anxiety, we can trust and obey. For there is no other way to be truly happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful passage of restoration and the promise that faithfulness does bring a life of flourishing. And so we pray now that you would add to the reading and preaching of your word an abundance of blessing so that we would be inspired to be faithful. Keep us faithful. 
Help us to want to obey you. And then we ask that you would be faithful to your promises and bless us. And give us what we need. And most especially, give us yourself. We crave your presence. We crave the day when we will see you face to face. So sustain us until that great day and keep us faithful to you through your faithfulness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.